The Postal Service is moving ahead with its next-generation delivery vehicle contract now that a major hurdle is out of the way. One of the electric vehicle companies on USPS's shortlist has pulled its bid protest over this $3 billion contract, that deal now going to Oshkosh Defense. With this and more on the latest postal happenings, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me now. And Jory, let's start with this postal contract for vehicles. Give us the background. Why did this vendor protest in the first place and why are they gone? Who are they? For a little context here, the vendor that we're talking about here is the electric vehicle company Workhorse Group, and they filed their bid protest back in June. Their chief argument was that the Postal Service unfairly took them out of consideration over a safety incident that was caused by a USPS test track driver in their version of events in this bid protest they did file. And the other gripe that they had here is that the winning vendor, Oshkosh Defense, Workhorse alleged that Oshkosh had submitted a prototype vehicle that was entirely different than the one that was ultimately selected for production. So those were its chief arguments there. Why did they then pull the protest? So things started to unravel a little bit from there. Attorneys for USPS and the Justice Department, they told the court that Workhorse didn't exhaust its administrative appeals options before filing that bid protest. So not even really reviewing the merits of the case beyond that. They were saying this was a non-starter. And then attorneys for Oshkosh Defense, they really didn't pull any punches. They told the court that Workhorse's electric battery-powered design finished last five out of five of prototypes that the Postal Service considered. And so this was not even a conversation about fairness or anything. They said that on the merits of this vehicle, Workhorse was never going to get this contract award. And meanwhile, there were some internal troubles at Workhorse as well. The Wall Street Journal recently reported that Workhorse is under investigation by the Securities and Exchange Commission. And Workhorse now has a new CEO. The old CEO was the one who filed this bid protest. So new blood, they looked at everything that was going on and they ultimately decided to take their lumps and cut their losses here and pull this bid protest. Yeah, there's a question of whether some of these new electric startups are really viable companies with viable products, I think is one of the questions. And can imagine, you know, Christmas Eve, a mail truck breaking down because the battery died or something in front of a rural delivery house and the letter carrier comes up to the house and says, "Uh, golly, can I plug in here for Christmas Eve and maybe I can get this electric vehicle out of here? Just imagining that. And what happens with the contract now? Goes straight to Oshkosh? That seems to be the case. Uh, We have yet to hear from the Postal Service in terms of what this means for the timeline to see these new delivery vehicles out in the wild. When this contract was first awarded, the Postal Service said that we would start to see these new trucks out on mail routes in 2023. Unclear of whether that has been revised or changed in any way, but at this point Oshkosh Defense gets started producing up to 160. 5,000 vehicles for the Postal Service. So that's a tall order, and this is a 10-year contract. It's going to be quite a few busy years. All right. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, and also at USPS, while we have you, there is lots going on with respect to COVID-19, vaccination, emergency standards, and so forth. A lot going on with COVID and Postal Service. Tell us the latest. Yeah, there are quite a few irons in the fire here. The Postal Service, just to give you a little more context, doesn't fall under the Biden administration's latest executive order for federal employees, even though we usually consider them as part of the federal family. But they do fall under what is 
coming up soon, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA's soon-to-be-coming uh, emergency rule, and that will apply to all employers that have 100 or more employees, and the Postal Service with 600,000-plus employees is certainly uh, falling under that category. What we'll see in a little bit more detail is that these employers will have to ensure that their employees are fully vaccinated or that they are submitting negative tests at least once a week. And what we saw from the Postal Service just recently is that they are, you know, taking some early steps here as much as they can without this OSHA emergency rule coming out now. But they said that whatever comes out from OSHA, that this is going to be a mandatory bargaining condition for its unions. And so that is where things stand now. Now, what we don't quite know yet is how unions are having these conversations with the Postal Service. Of its major unions, only one, the American Postal Workers Union, is currently negotiating over its labor contract. And I imagine that would be part of those conversations. APWU officials, when I spoke to them, uh, declined to give any further details on how that's going. But as far as some of the other unions, I spoke with National Postal Mail Handlers Union President Paul Hagrosian, and he said that the union has yet to hear anything further from the Postal Service regarding those vaccination and testing requirements, aside from what he described as preliminary discussions right, right after President Joe Biden signed the executive order. And just to clarify, is there a vaccine mandate or will there be for postal employees? And is that what they're bargaining over? At this point, what they're looking at is not a vaccine mandate per se, because there is this testing requirement which is different from the rest of the federal workforce, which is required to get the vaccine at this point. So then the Postal Service then, for purposes of COVID-19, is like a large corporation that will come under this OSHA deal that is going to affect private sector employers also. That's the best way to look at it. And what the unions, at least what Hagrosian told me, is that what he's thinking about once this OSHA thing comes out is, what are the deadlines going to be? What kind of testing and vaccines can its members receive? Will testing and vaccinations be available at the work site or will employees get time and leave to go do those things? And most importantly, what happens to employees who don't comply? Uh, Hagrosian said, you know, OSHA is a small agency and they can't possibly be at every post office to make sure that everyone is complying. So a couple of big questions that we don't quite have answers to. Yeah, that yet. is a big question generally is the capacity of OSHA. It's a nice thing to say, well, let OSHA do it because they're occupational safety and health, but they have trouble getting to the regulated and covered industries as it stands now without having to get to every place in the universe with COVID. So that, as you say, remains to be seen. And finally, Jory, there are some new postal rates that went into effect last month. They were challenged. What's going on there? Yeah, so these rates did go into effect on August 29th. For most people, the biggest change that they saw was the price of a first-class postage stamp going up to $0.58. Cents. That's up from $0.55 cents before that. That is still being challenged by the National Postal Policy Council, which has a pending lawsuit about that. There were recently oral arguments over that lawsuit. Judges with the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, however, expressed some skepticism with those claims, saying that its regulator, the Postal Regulatory Commission, ultimately balanced a lot of factors here and determining the long-term financial health of the Postal Service. Got so it. We've had to hear a formal ruling on that, but that is at least the tone that the judges conveyed so far. All right. And of course, the court did deny that request from the National Postal Policy Council to block the USPS from raising rates. So it looks like 58 cents. 
Here we come. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out all of his postal coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from sea to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But 
really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to, to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing, if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is 
is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.